chapter 7. If you're just joining us, uh, today we've been walking through a series in Ecclesiastes where basically for six chapters we've been told that so many of the things that we pursue in life, uh, the roads that we seek to go down in pursuit of uh, finding meaning through our work, through relationships, uh, finding meaning in accumulation of stuff, money, power. It's almost like we've stood at this, this junction with lots of different roads that we can choose to go down. And just as we're thinking about going down each of these roads, the teacher, Solomon, we believe, uh, comes up and goes, <clears throat> been there, done that. Uh, it's a cul-de-sac. It doesn't actually go anywhere. So, don't worry about it. It's all meaningless. Now, at the end of chapter 6 and going into 7, the book actually starts to take a bit more of a positive turn. There, there, there is a way to live a good life in a meaningless world. But some of the stuff that's contained in here is still hard. In fact, commentators said, it is notoriously hard. So with that in mind, shall we turn to Ecclesiastes 7 and read it together. This is God's word. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under the pot. So is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God 
will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one man, one wise man, more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Luke says to teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Amen. This is God's word. Well, life can be very confusing, and answers can be very hard to find. People go in search of wisdom in all sorts of places. Uh, Paul mentioned at the start of this series the way that people are taking to life coaching. Uh, But there are many people who don't go to see people face-to-face, but who go to things like books, self-help books. I I walked into Waterstones the other day browsing the self-help section, realizing that I had to actually wait till people cleared away before I could actually get into the books to see. Uh, That's that's the kind of appeal and desire that these books have for people. It it was busy. But they're standing there thinking, okay, life is a bit crooked. It's it's inexplicable at times. Where am I going to get some wisdom from? And they center their hopes, these books, they center the hopes of the readers basically in themselves. It's all about positive thinking that's what it's all about that's how you live a better life that's how you can live a good life in the midst of a crooked world or all you have to do is follow these six or seven simple steps and you'll be successful you'll be better off you'll have a better life it's all just about self-confidence so in other words the problem is you're just not realizing your potential and the good news for them is it's in yourself How deceptive. We don't always get the answers we're looking for. And I don't think people get the answers they're looking for in there. (laughs) Even just this week, I was was using Siri on my mobile phone. It's basically, for those who don't know what Siri is, it's a voice-enabled search engine that uses voice recognition. So you speak to your phone, tell it what you want, and it speaks back to you to give you an answer. And uh, this week, I asked Siri on my mobile phone a question about something to do with Ecclesiastes 7. I can't remember exactly what it was, but this was the answer that I got. I would ask that you address your spiritual questions to someone more qualified to comment. (laughs) Ideally, a human. 
Now, is it just me or does that sound patronizing? I was offended by a piece of technology. But Siri, like the self-help books on our secular shelves, still thinks the answer is found in human beings. But Ecclesiastes 7 tells us we need to look away from ourselves to God for counsel to know how we live a good life in a meaningless world. And Ecclesiastes 7 is very much like Proverbs, isn't it? Even as we read through it, I'm sure you sense that actually it just feels quite bitty. There are probably about 20 sermons that you could preach in this text. But I think as we look a little bit more carefully together in the next few minutes that we'll see there is a bit more cohesion to it when I think there are basically five lessons in here. Five things to take from this passage that help us think through how we as God's people can live a good life in the midst of a meaningless world. So let's look at number one in verses one to six. The appeal of the teacher is this, let death instruct you in life. That's verses one to six. Spend time thinking about the fact that you're going to die is basically what he's saying. Put yourself in a place of mourning and let the reality of death prod you to think about how you're living your life. Verse 1 says, the day of death better than the day of birth. And we say, really? But he's saying bereavement is better than birth, that helping you wise up, so in terms of its function, helping you wise up to know how to live a good, how to live a better life. That's why he says in verse 2, better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. That sounds really odd to us, doesn't it? It's almost like what we would think has just been flipped on its head. I mean, what would you rather do? Visit a newborn in a maternity unit or attend a gravesite? A wedding or a wake? I don't think the teacher hates the, ideas, the idea of weddings or, or having parties or having fun, but I think he is saying that if we want to think through what it means to live a better life, if we want to be taught by wisdom, then we, tend, we don't tend to think that deeply on life when we're toasting the bride and groom, when we're taking photos of them cutting the cake or later dancing to Abba. If, if that's all we do, we'll live lives that are ignorant of death. And the point of the teacher here is that death, remembering death, attending funerals, realizing that are coming face to face with our own mortality, though painful, will serve us well in life. It's a good thing for us. The foolishness of those who live just for the parties, for the weddings and so on, is, is clear in this text. But verse 2 wakes us up, wakens us up. Death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. In other words, let this just sink in. Otherwise, your life will be about as useful as what it says in verse 6, as thorns at boiling a pot of water. Thorns burn up really quickly. You know, you won't even get to 40 degrees if you use thorns to boil a pot of water. It just burns out. It's pointless. That's his point. And the New Testament, of course, picks up on this teaching as well. The reality of death, doesn't it? 
Hebrews 9 tells us, look, come face to face with this. Man is destined to die once, and after this, to face judgment. If we don't take account of that while we are living, if we don't take that to heart right now, today, then we will be careless with our lives. We will spend our lives on things that will ultimately prove to be pointless, particularly for us as Christians. We... We might think that life is just all about parties or else it's all about comfort. And then there'll be no urgency for mission, will there? There'll be no urgency for telling people the gospel. No, we'll go and have feasts with our families three, four, five, six times a year. We'll bump into friends, we'll have coffee plenty of times, but there'll be no urgency, no, no desire to share the gospel with people. Perhaps beneath the surface we think, we just assume in the fact that we're going to have 85 years or more. Well, verse 5 tells us what we should do in this regard. Heed a wise man's rebuke rather than listen to the song of our fools. Song of fools. Ponder our mortality. Let that shape us. Uh, it was Robert Browning Hamilton who wrote that, those wonderful words. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way. Left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. And ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. So let sorrow, let this death, that place of mourning, make us wise. That's how we can live a better life. A life lived for God's glory as God-fearers. So the second thing, in verses 7 to 10, I think the appeal is this. Don't let trials corrupt your heart. There isn't a day goes by in which we don't feel the weight of external pressures. Everybody does, I'm sure. Uh, we know things that stress us out. Now, these things not only weigh us down, but they actually have the potential to corrupt our hearts. So to make our hearts, if you like, not function properly as they should. That is if this, these pressures are not handled wisely. So we can respond in ways that are foolish and ungodly. This is what verses 7 to 10 basically deal with here. And the main obstacle that we face then here is this oppression. There is extortion, or oppression as another translation says in verse 7. There's bribery too. Uh, both of which come about when people with power manipulate their, their authority that can, that can heap anxiety on you, even misery on you at times. You see that in verse 7. What is the teacher's counsel? Because basically he says the weight of such pressures are enough to crack a wise man. What is this counsel? Well, if you want to live a good life, a life of wisdom, you need to understand what it means to be patient. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience better than pride. Give it time, the teacher says. Be patient. Uh, we see the same teaching again in the New Testament on many occasions. To bear with people or be patient in affliction. So whether it's a situation or whether, whether it's a person, be patient. James, of course, says those words that we know so well. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the teacher says, don't let these, th these things, these trials corrupt your heart, but instead be patient in these things recognizing that God is doing a work to mature you 
the worst thing you can do in this situation then I think he's saying is to lose your cool and lose perspective on God's sovereign activity even in the heat of oppression and manipulation that's why he mentions things like anger uh, to be angry with others can lead to sin and angry with God that's just foolishness of course uh, anger will not help you in other words it will just consume you or else it might make you just long to be out of that situation as well that's why he mentions nostalgia uh, for us here uh, in verse 10 do not say oh why were the old days better than these it's not wise to ask such questions now nostalgia is fine of course if you just want to reminisce but it's not good for you if you want to know how to live life better in the here and now because you cannot I think this is the teacher's wisdom. You cannot possibly face the difficulties of this day by pining after a past day. That, I think the teacher says, is crazy. And it it can just lead to your heart being corrupted and you will not function properly. That's the second thing. So let death instruct you in life. Don't let trials corrupt your heart. The third thing is let God's sovereignty steady your walk. In verses 11 to 14. Uh, There are a couple of appeals in here. First of all, wisdom is good. Verse 11, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. Now, again, we have to read this in the context of God's people, Israel, back then. Whenever they hear the word inheritance, what do you think they're thinking of? Promised land. They're thinking about this land that is good, a land that is a gift from God, a land that is blessing, a land that meant food, good food, milk and honey, a land that meant security and blessing. So it's beneficial, the teacher says. This wisdom is is good in that sense. It is like a shelter. And verse 12 says, preserves the life of its possessor. In other words, even in difficulty, you know, it's like a life jacket to a guy that's swimming away from a sinking ship. It's going to sustain you. It's a good thing. But what does the teacher actually want us to do with this wisdom? What does he want us to know? Uh, What does he want us to discern and to act on? Well, this is the second appeal. Consider what God has done. To consider what God has done. What's he saying here? I think he's pointing out that wisdom preserves us even in the hard realities of life because, precisely because it centers our hope on God who has his hands firmly on the wheel his purposes finally mapped out and no obstacle in his way who, who, as it says in verse 13 can straighten what he has made crooked When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Isn't that hard to read? You see what he's saying? Both good and bad are subject to his sovereign will and part of his overall providence. He says, listen, when everything's going right, when there's plenty to eat, when there's money in the bank, enjoy it because this is God's gift to you. And then he goes on to say, essentially, when there's nothing to eat, when there are no friends, when you can't find a star in the sky, enjoy this, because this is God's gift to you. Really? It's hard to take on board, isn't it? Some of us might mishear that today. Some of us might 
think, well, God sends sorrow into our lives, but we need to recognize that he can do that. And he does it because he loves us. And at times, we see this in the New Testament again, don't we? Especially with the apostle Paul, who has his thorn in the flesh. You know, we have Paul with this thorn in the flesh. And God basically saying to him, listen, I'm going to keep you from boasting in, in these great revelations that I'm giving you. I'm going to give you basically an evil spirit to torment you. And three times Paul pleads with him, can, I, can, I, can we do it another way? Can we do it another way? But God says, no. What does he say? My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And again, Paul's pleading, please remove this sorrow for, from me. But actually the gift, the sorrow is a gift to him. It's a widely unpopular text and a very unpopular thing to consider. But the Lord granted Paul relief not by removing his thorn, but by providing grace sufficient to endure it. And I think this is what the teacher is giving to us to enable us to steady our walk, to remember actually it's a good thing that God is in control. And it's a good thing that there are not these, these powers that be that are completely unleashed on us. No, the reign is tightly in God's hand. Though he takes us through some bitter times, I think the teacher is encouraging us to see here that God's sovereignty is a soft pillow on which we can lay our heads. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, we sing, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So let death instruct you in life. Don't let trials corrupt your heart. Let God's sovereignty steady your walk. And don't let, fourthly, confusion destroy your life. Look with me at verses 15 to 18. In verse 15, the teacher again raises a question that, that actually will just vex us all at some point in our lives. Why did the good die young? And the wicked live for a long time. Uh, you know why many people ask this question though, don't you? Because we have this underlying belief that whatever good you do, you should be rewarded with good things. And that whatever bad you do should be similarly punished, like for like. And that's the way the world thinks. Uh, that's actually the basis on which most what of religions operate, thinking of Buddhism and Islam and Mormonism, it's, it's kind of like karma. But the problem for the people of God is that this mindset can easily at times creep into the life of the church. And don't get me wrong, if you ask a Christian, you know, do you believe in karma? They'll be like, no, we believe the Bible. But in our experience, what do we say when we see something bad happen to a good person? Well, of all the wicked people out there, why did this happen to Joe? You ever heard yourself say that? Or at least thought it? Isn't that a kind of a weird kind of karma? Well, the teacher says, if karma is the operating system of the world, then it's gone horribly wrong because, verse 15, I've seen a righteous man perishing in righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. What's the answer? the teacher doesn't give us one but he does try to help us with this conundrum by avoiding two extremes over righteousness 
and over wickedness. Don't be over righteous, he says in verse 16. Don't be over wise. Some of us are sitting there thinking, yes, I've nailed this. <laughs> Why destroy yourself, he says. Do not be over wicked and don't be a fool. Why die before your time? What is this all about? I mean, is he, is he prescribing holiness in moderation? <laughs> you know, just a little bit of righteousness. You know, you can go to church, but you can swear in your car kind of thing. I mean, I, I, what are we to make of this? No, I think we've got to take these words in their original context. Again, what is, what is the teacher saying to God's people Israel here? Because to the minds of those people back then, they had the law of God, which promised that if that those who kept the law would what? Deuteronomy 5, live long in the land that you're going to possess. So, okay, you obey me and there's going to be long life. And that's true in a general sense, in a broad sense, as a people. If God had promised a long life to those who were good, and these good people then die young, these, these folks are thinking, then Israel might have drawn the conclusion that, oh man, we're just not righteous enough. We're just not righteous enough. Therefore, they would have to do one of two things. Try harder or give up altogether. There's the option of try harder. This is what the over-righteous thing is all about. it's, It's not countering the call of God who says quite simply to his people, both in terms of the Old Testament and now for us, the new covenant people of God, be holy because I am holy. But it is warning against this mindset of a kind of super righteousness in which we think that we need to be good and therefore that God owes us for being good. In other words, there is a way that we can earn our salvation. There's a way that we can offer ourselves to God and say, hey, look at me. You want to join me as I pat myself in the back? So people are confused. Wow, that person, I thought he was a good person. But he's died, so therefore sin must have been a big issue for him. So I need to try harder than that guy. It's not the way it works. It's a warning against some kind of corrupt self-righteousness, like the kind of thing that Jesus tackles uh, page after page in the Gospels with the Pharisees. You could try harder, or you can give up altogether. That's the kind of stuff it mentality. Well, if the good die young, then why bother trying to be good? I might as well get my party gear on and head out to a club. Well, listen, while sin is a reality in everyone's life, those who embrace evil as a way of life will be destroyed by it. Both of these things, trying harder or giving up altogether, will destroy you. And the teacher's counsel is simple. Fear God. Don't try and take the place of God, but fear God. Fear God and you will avoid both of these extremes. So let death instruct you in life. Don't let trials corrupt your heart. Let God's sovereignty steady your walk. Don't let confusion destroy your life. And lastly, let your shortfall point you to Jesus. This is what we see in verses 19 to 29. This section is fundamentally about wisdom and righteousness, uh, both of which are held out as good things to pursue. But the reality presented by the teacher here is, guess what? These things are impossible to attain. Impossible to attain. And he uses the language of accountancy and economics, really, 
to show us our shortfall when he's talking about the scheme of things and adding to things. He's using economic language. So when it comes to wisdom, he says no one understands. Verse 19 tells us of wisdom's value. It makes you more powerful than 10 prime ministers. Verse 23 to 24 tells us that when it comes to wisdom, though, no one can attain it. No one understands it. He says, I am determined to be wise, about, uh, wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it's far off. In other words, there is no end in sight. And most profound. In other words, it is very, very deep, and no one can fathom it. Who can discover it, he says. It's beyond our ability to understand everything under the sun, the teacher says. It's beyond figuring out. Now, this doesn't necessarily need to be an unsettling thing for us. It's another good reason for us to trust God and fear God. This is the way he works. Of course, we couldn't figure everything out in terms of God and the wisdom and knowledge that is available. Isaiah 55 tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At Paul, trying to grapple with some of these things, even in the, gospel, in, in the book of Romans 11.33, after a bunch of perplexing passages, which look at some of these topics in relation to, to God's sovereignty and things like that, just just bursts into praise oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out so what do we make of all this wisdom is valuable and must be pursued but listen wisdom is unattainable if we seek to achieve it through our own calculations This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. In their their wisdom, wise men, scholars, philosophers of their age try to think think that they can figure everything out about the universe and about our existence all on their own, but they won't. Why? Because man was never made to be dependent on his own calculations or his own intellect for knowing God and figuring out who God is and how God saves. No, man was created to be dependent upon revelation. Created to be dependent on what God reveals. In man's economy, we think we can can add it all up, but we can't. We have no real category for what is in God's economy that which we see in 1 Corinthians 1 again that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise the weak things of the world to shame the strong the lowly things the things that are not to nullify the things that are you see wisdom is not contingent on your calculations it's actually contingent on who you know verse 24 of 1 Corinthians calls Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God So could it be that the unsuccessful discovery of Solomon, the wisest man on earth, that he wasn't able to figure it out, is meant to point us to Christ, the wisdom of God? I think it is. Because the same pattern is evident in relation to righteousness in this passage. 
Look at verse 27. Luke said to teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. What did he find by his calculations? He found that no one was righteous. Verse 28. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, don't misunderstand this. The teacher is not being chauvinistic here. Uh, he's, you're all smiling because you wondered what I was going to say about that, didn't you? I know, I can see you. He's, let me, he's using a rhetorical device that's used in wisdom literature where the point made in the first line is repeated but emphasized through changing one detail in the second line uh, to drive the point home. The point that he has already made in verse 20, there is no one righteous. There is not a righteous man on earth who does right and never sins. It doesn't present anyone, it's not exactly presenting males, men, in a better light, is it? One in a thousand, one-tenth of one percent, really? You want to get hung up on that? We can have a chat about that afterwards. Verse 26, there's an objection comes in, I suppose. Oh, well, what about where he says the woman is a snare? Again, it's allegorical language, though. He's not saying that women have mousetraps for hearts and bike chains for hands. No, he's using a rhetorical device like he does in Proverbs 5, like, like, like we see in Proverbs 7. It's an allegory. It's not to be taken literally. You have to get the point. And the point he's trying to make here is that I've searched and searched for righteousness and I haven't found it. There is no one righteous. And he, he found that everyone sins. He found that everyone actually sins willfully, choosing to sin. 29, this, have I, this only have I found. God made man upright, he says. Great, he's reorientating us here. That's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? God made us to be like him. Upright, holy, good, perfectly sinless. That's, that's the height of humanity to date, do you understand? It's never been as good as it was then, no matter how educated we get, no matter how technologically advanced we become. That was it. We knew God. We walked with God in our humanity. So how come we see so much wickedness? Verse 29 continues. Men have gone in search of many schemes. Willfully, consciously, rebelling against God and following after their own wisdom instead of his. Adam and Eve schemed to be like God in Genesis 3, to be wise to everything. That scheme failed miserably. Instead of acquiring the God-likeness that they sought, they got suffering, hard work, and pain. The people in Genesis 11 schemed to build a tower that will, make, that will reach up to the skies and make people say, isn't man great? Well, that failed when the Lord, who will not give his glory to another, confused their language and scattered them across the earth. Scheme after scheme after scheme. Seeking life without God. That is why there is no one righteous, not even one. We're back at the question, I think, that we raised earlier. About asking, what do we do then? You know, if there's no one who's wise, wisdom is unattainable. If there's, if there's no one righteous, why do we bother Try harder or give up, you know, that kind of thing. But again, could it be that our inability to make ourselves right with God is intended, us, intended to drive us to Christ? We read, turn with me again to Romans 3. 
We've seen it in verse 10, haven't we? Ah, there is no one righteous. Not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their lips. Mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Feet swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And in the way of peace they do not know. There is no what? Fear of God. Before their eyes. Now go to verse 21. Paul having just described. Your state. Without Christ says but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify this righteousness from God in other words not man comes through through what trying harder no through faith in Jesus Christ to all who what believe There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So who is wise? Those who meditate on death and especially on the death of Christ. Those who look to Christ as the wisdom of God. Those who look to Christ for their righteousness. Friend, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Do you know there is nothing you can do? No performance, no level of performance that you can reach that will make you righteous in God's sight. That's not a reason for you to give up. But it is a reason for you to trust Christ. Because without coming to him and acknowledging that God sent him to die on a cross to take away our sin... That as he hangs there on the cross bearing the punishment for our sin, that those who put their faith and trust in him have this, his righteousness, his sinless perfection, if you like, credited to cancel out our shortfall, our deficit. That those who believe in him might have eternal life. That can have this knowledge of Christ the wisdom of God and power of God and Christ our righteousness have you believed in him have you said sorry for your sins confessed those sins before him in recognition that yes God made man upright but we have made many schemes are you willing to let go of those schemes uh, to turn from them and run full pelt after Jesus Christ knowing that he covered, his grace covers over all of your failures and assures you of a place in glory with him. I pray you would. I pray that we would all heed the lessons of the teacher today. That we would let death instruct us in life. That we wouldn't let trials corrupt our hearts. That we would allow God's sovereignty to steady our walk. That we wouldn't let confusion destroy our lives. And let our wisdom and especially our shortfall in righteousness point us to Christ who is wisdom and righteousness.
Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we are conscious that we have considered many difficult things today in such a short period of time. Uh, I thank you for uh, the joy and the freedom that we have of being able to study your word together. I pray for each and every one of these folks here who have been listening, that they would be like the Bereans in Acts, who would take what has been said, to take it away and test it in accordance with the scriptures to see if what is said has been true, and so be good stewards of all that they hear. And Father, we pray that you would receive our thanks and praise for making a way for us uh, unrighteous and foolish people to come to know you, the living God, and to have the security and the blessing and the joy of salvation through Jesus Christ, your Son, and our glorious King. It is in his name we pray. Amen.